Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as Pastor Dane Skelton shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Dane. I ask you to bear with me. The pollen is uh, doing a number on my throat today, so I may have to take more breaks than usual. Um, Want to, let, me, let me just start today, because this is kind of a one-off message, and I just want to read the scripture passages that uh, this message is drawn from. They are Genesis 12, 1, Hebrews 11, 8, Genesis 12, 1, and Hebrews 11, 8, and then uh, Exodus chapter 3. One through well, just verse one and one through ten, and then Acts chapter thirteen verses one through three. Acts chapter thirteen verses one through three. So let's just let's read those very quickly together. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And I'm going to go on and read down through verse 4. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So... Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And then Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a little more perspective on what was going on in Abraham's life. He's, Abram, who, whose name was changed to Abraham, just in verse 8, Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. So that was just an, uh, an elaboration on what was happening there. And then let's look at Moses' story briefly. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, where the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, and from within a bush, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, bush Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the out of the land, that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And now finally in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, and you'll know that he later became known as Paul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So I wanted to be sure that we had all of that so that we, this talk this morning is properly framed. Let me ask you guys a question. If I tell you, if I mention an author's name, Joel Chandler Harris, do you know who that is? Joel Chandler Harris? Okay, mom does. Southern literature. Um, Joel Chandler Harris was a writer from the Old South who wrote children's stories about a, an old black slave named Uncle Remus who told stories to a little boy, a little white boy. And there were wonderful stories, but as you can imagine nowadays with, um, with people uh, canceling Dr. Seuss, that uh, Joel Chandler Harris is persona non grata. In, uh, in the literary world. So in January, on January 31st of 2019, um, Jeff Good and I went to an Alpha Leadership Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. And we went one day early so that we could go to the dinner that was a leadership dinner, uh, pastor's kind of dinner, the night before the conference started. And we were standing outside. They hadn't opened the doors to the dining hall yet. And we were standing outside the door. And I was chatting with a nice lady from San Francisco whose name I've forgotten. And uh, a tall black gentleman came walking across the lobby and introduced himself. His name is Gerald Bargainer III. And he's from Colorado. And he said, I'm from Colorado. Where are you from? I said, I'm from Virginia. And he said, oh, Virginia. I said, well, yeah, I've lived in Virginia a long time, but I'm originally from Atlanta. And he said, oh, Atlanta. And I said, yeah, born and bred in a briar patch. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've just quoted Joel Chandler Harris to a black man. I'm in deep trouble Because those stories are just ingrained in me. They just come out. And they're sweet stories to me. So uh, Gerald's eyes narrowed. He had bright green eyes. And he leaned in and he started to speak. And I'll tell you what happened in a little bit. <laughs> At 21 years of age, I heard a distinct call to preach. And in response, I went to seminary and I developed a life plan. Get educated serve as an associate pastor for a while, then serve as a pastor for 20 or 25 years, do my THD and finish out my life teaching in a Bible college or a seminary because that was the life of the men who had taught me. And I thought it was a pretty good life plan, so that's what I did. In my mid-40s, however, I became convinced that God's calling 
for the latter part of my life did not involve a doctor of theology and teaching in a seminary. In fact, the more I thought about doing a doctorate in anything, the more I liked root canals. And um, <laughs> once that was settled, though, the, I, I felt that the Lord was calling me to be a storyteller, to be a writer. And so once that was settled, I began preparing, and I took a two-year correspondence course. And once I prepared and was finished with the course, I was actually looking for my first assignment, and they teach you in this course write uh, about what you know because the research is easier and there's a lot of research. Write about what you love because the research, you are going to get tired and you need to have passion about it. And then write to serve, don't write to make money because authors that actually make a living writing are like guys that make it in the NFL. You know, there's very few and far between. So I was looking for my first assignment, I call it, from God. And that's when I visited Papua in 2005 and I asked my friend David, we're standing on the side of this mountain in Papua, Indonesia, 6,000 feet in elevation on a ski slope runway. And I'm talking to this pilot, this jungle pilot. And I turned to my friend David, who was the manager of the aviation uh, operation there. I said, David, is anybody writing these stories down? Because this pilot was telling me awesome stories. I said, is anybody writing these stories down? Somebody needs to be writing them down. And he said, Dane, we can't write them down. We don't have time. And they don't, if you know anything about missionaries. Do I get an amen back there in the corner? They don't. So that was my first assignment, and I wrote the book Jungle Flight, uh, whose working title was What's Keeping You Here? And it was about Bible translators and people who work for JARS all over the world, Jungle Aviation and Radio Service. That followed, the, uh, and so that was published in 2009, and, and I followed that up with a memoir of that same pilot, so the first one was about several different people. The second one was just about this same pilot, Paul Westland. You've heard me talk about him. We were almost finished with his book in 2011 when he crashed and died. His wife helped me finish, his widow helped me finish that book, and we published it in 2013. And JAR still uses it, and Wycliffe still uses it to this day to help people understand the ministry of Bible translation and the ministry of aviation uh, jungle flying. So in 2018, and, and, and then, so that was 2013. Then in 2016, my next project was I wrote up the story of my daughter's entry into development into and God's deliverance out of anorexia. Uh, and that book has not been published, but it may, it may be one day. So in 2018, and by the way, I do have a PDF of it. If you have anybody, if you know anybody that has a child that's stuck in anorexia, I'm happy to share the PDF with you. So in 2018, in 2018, remember I told you I met Gerald Bargainer in January of 2019. In 2018, I was looking for my next assignment. I had attended the World Journalism Institute course in early part of that year and uh, didn't look like I had a career with World Magazine. Uh, any future with World Magazine, but I did learn a lot about writing. And so in 2018, I was looking for my next assignment. So I'm going to pause it right there and get you to hang on with me a little bit more because the rest of this sermon is not about me. It's about you. And it's about what God is doing in your life and the calling that God has on your life as an individual and as a church, because I want 
all of us to be able to hear God's calling, to be able to understand God's calling and what it means, and be able to embrace God's calling and what it means. And so I boil it down. There's a whole lot involved in answering God's call, understanding it, and answering it in your life. I've boiled it down to some of these three essential things that I get from these stories that we just read about Abraham, Moses, and Paul. Number one is leaving. Number two is believing. And number three is working. Leaving, believing, and working. So let's deal with leaving first. Genesis 12.1, Hebrews 11.8. Abraham left the familiar and holding tightly to the promise of God, embraced the unknown. That's what he did. And so I wanted to think about some things that he left behind. This is certainly not all of them. But basically, he left behind his family network, his language group, and his homeland. His family network, his language group, and his homeland. So what does that mean? That means he's leaving behind generations of emotional and practical support and economic connections, which are vital, especially in that day and time. He's leaving behind security and numbers. He's leaving behind many other practical things. Second, he's leaving behind cultural familiarity. Now, Abraham may have been bilingual, he may have been multilingual, but that's not the same. Being able to communicate in another environment is not the same as being with your people and communicating in your environment. And if I had time, I would tell you a joke, but I don't have time. But basically, I learned from my friend who, who leads uh, a church planting and ministry network in underground in Iran. He said, in, he said I call it the language of marrying and burying. He said, we, in our mother tongue, that's where we do our weddings. In our mother tongue, that's where we do our funerals. In our mother tongue, we tell jokes in our mother tongue because it takes cultural familiarity for us to stand, understand each other's jokes. And if I try to tell an American joke in France or someplace like that, they're not going to get it. So you're leaving behind that cultural familiarity, and that's difficult. Third, he's leaving behind the sense of connection and home that he felt in his native geography. For example, we have a middle girl, our middle girl lives in Montana, as many of you know. We go to visit her in Montana. I never feel at home in Montana. It's brown <laughs> most of the time. And when it's not brown, it's white, which I don't do. You know, I feel at home in the North Carolina mountains, in the Virginia Piedmont, in, you know, in, in Georgia mountains. I don't feel home in Montana. Abraham left his home. He left his geography, the place he'd been familiar with all his life. He also faced unknown challenges, and he overcame them. Just a few, again. He oversaw, he was overseeing a large entourage on a long journey as an old man. He was 75 when he left Ur and headed to Egypt. Obviously a very vigorous old man, but he was an old man. He overcame, he faced and overcame famine. He had a large entourage and he had to overcome famine. He had to go down into Egypt to do that. When he went down into Egypt, that meant he had to preserve his marriage because the Egyptian uh, Pharaoh was likely to snatch his wife and God provided for him with that. 
he had to deal with conflict between his shepherds and Lot's shepherds, his nephew that went with them. So think about managing conflict between warring parties of employees, and you can understand that, or even church members sometimes, but we won't go there. And finally, he had to rescue his nephew when they were overcome by marauders. Lots of things Abraham had to face and overcome. The list is long. He went out not knowing where he was going and not knowing what he was facing. He only knew he was trusting God and obeying. All of us are being challenged today to leave the familiar and meet our personal faults and our personal failures, meet the people and things in the world that are difficult and overcome as we answer God's call to move into the future that he has prepared for us. Let me give you some random examples. We are familiar, or at least those of us who are my age and up, are familiar with a culture that buttressed our values. We are raising children and grandchildren now in a culture that actively undermines those values. How will we overcome that, trusting God? Because we've got to hold tightly to the promises of God and embrace new things, embrace the unknown and try new things. We are familiar with a world that teaches us to pursue financial gain and personal fulfillment first and happiness will then be added to us. But we are called by a Christ who said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. We are comfortable with church as it has always been, with familiar faces in leadership and a consistent style of ministry. But as we learned in a course that Jamie taught several months ago in uh, the characteristics of dying churches, churches that do not embrace change die on the vine. You can, you can travel to any number of pretty much empty church buildings in our county alone and find that out. The generation that has led this and every other healthy church soon must give way to a new generation that will see ministry and do ministry differently. Let me give you an example. When FCC was founded over 30 years ago now, it was so different from the norm that people thought it was a cult. Now, our informal style and our contemporary worship is the norm. You can find it in just about any church you travel to. And the pace of change has increased exponentially. As you heard Glenn report earlier, for the first time in the 80-year history of the Gallup Houses of Worship survey, religious Americans are now in the minority. American membership in a house of worship is at 47%. Trevin Wax, who's the general editor of the Gospel Project at Lifeway Christian Resources and a visiting professor at Wheaton College, says if you look at the data, it really is in the last 20 years that this decline has become much faster and more precipitous when it comes to who is identifying as a church member and who says they are a member of a mosque or a synagogue. So it's not only going downhill faster, it's going downhill like this, precipitous. He said the quickness of the drop-off in the last 20 years is a pretty stunning collapse. So things that worked 30 years ago in terms of reaching our community for Christ have lost their effectiveness. And, their, and things that are working today 
are, will lose their effectiveness even faster. Now, let me make this very clear. The centrality of the cross of Christ, his complete and perfect atonement for our sins, the need for salvation by grace through repentance and faith, that never changes. But the way we do ministry must change over time. And so, again, another shameless plug for our leadership conference. One of the reasons I am so pumped about this conference, Reaching the Next Generation for Christ, is that our speakers will be addressing these changes with practical recommendations. So I think it's very important that whoever is here and who can, whoever hears this podcast, should sign up and attend that conference. So let's now go from the general call that all of us have to the particular call. I am convinced that God has his hand quite heavy upon some of you in a particular way. And it may, may not be for pastoral ministry. You may not be called to preach like I was or to write. But it is something that you are not doing now. And what I want to urge you to do is listen to him, answer him, and say yes. You don't need to know everything up front. Abraham didn't. Moses didn't. Paul didn't. You cannot know everything up front. If you did know everything up front, you might run the other way. But answering God's call means embracing the certainty of uncertainty and holding on to his hand and saying, Lord, wherever you go, that's where I'm going. It also means walking with him and experiencing the joy of what only he can do in your life if you say yes. Because he is going to do something through you and grow you into his calling for your life. And that I can testify to. Abraham left the familiar and holding tightly to the promises of God, embraced the unknown, and the world was blessed through him. And as we emerge into a post-Christian culture, we need to answer his call to be the church to a new world and hold tightly to his gospel and his promises and embrace changing approaches to ministry. And I'll tell you, I don't know what all those are. That's why I'm going to the conference. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing what these guys have to say. So the first step to answering God's call is leaving the familiar and embracing the unknown. The second is believing that God can actually use you. Moses had four objections to God's call. All of those were based in a tremendous sense of his own inadequacies and uncertainties. The first was uncertainty about his importance in the world. Exodus 3.11, who am I to go? I should, I'm a nobody. He'd been a shepherd out in the desert for 40 years. The second was his uncertainty about who God was. Now, he knew God identified himself. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses knew who this was, but in verse 13 of chapter 3, he's basically saying, Who are you? How am I supposed to relate to you? What am I supposed to tell the Israelites? I don't even know your name. So uncertainty about God. Third was uncertainty that anybody would believe him. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. What if they say to me, The Lord did not appear to you? 
Why should we listen to you? What guy? You can't prove that. You saw a burning bush? Are you kidding? The fourth was his lack of confidence as a communicator. He said, I've, he literally said this, chapter 4, verse 10, I've never been eloquent. You know, Pharaoh's court was a place for great statesmen and speeches. So imagine being asked to make a presentation before the Queen of England and her court or something like that. It's kind of intimidating. Moses was intimidated. He had no confidence as a communicator. He said, I stutter. And then he said this, please send someone else. I thought, well, you would say that to God? You know it's God you're talking to, and you're going to say, please send somebody else. Everyone, I want to reassure you, everyone who ever heard God's call feels their inadequacies. Everybody. Everyone has a hard time believing that they have what it takes, and that they are sufficient to the task, and that they can do what God is calling them to do. Everyone. Let me give you an example. Several of the guys who were serving as elders when I first came here to FCC told me that when the founding pastor asked them to serve, they looked at him and they said, it's that bad, is it? I mean, buddy, if you're asking me, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Everybody feels their inadequacies. So I want to assure you, if God calls you, that is all the assurance that you need. Moses was a failed adoptee. He was, supposed to, he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, I think it was. He was a failed adoptee. He was a murderer and, an, and a fugitive. David was a shepherd boy who was the runt of the family. Peter was an impulsive peasant fisherman who failed Jesus at his most crucial hour. Mark had a track record for unreliability. Matthew was a corrupt IRS agent. Timothy was a timid mama's boy. Mary was an unmarried peasant girl. And Esther was a trophy wife with no legal authority to do what she did. When God calls you to be part of His work, it is normal to doubt your competence for the task. It is normal to be afraid that folks won't take you seriously. And it is normal to be overwhelmed by the responsibility, the sense of responsibility. It is normal to wonder who He is and if it is indeed the God of the universe who is calling you to do this thing. But when God calls you, he builds the capacity within you to do what you need to do. So believe Him. And take the first step. That's always the hardest part. Take the first step. Say, Lord, I believe you. I'm going to do what you're calling me to do. Take the first step. And here's what will happen. He will begin to confirm that in you and begin to develop the capacity in you to do what he's calling you to do. You don't have the capacity now. He's going to develop it and grow it over time. So take the first step and watch him confirm it. And then take the next step and watch him confirm it. And then take the next step and watch him confirm it. So maybe a little bit more of my story will help. So I was uncertain. I had been on a trip in um, 2018 and I was to India with my friend David Reeves again. 
who is now the president and CEO of a ministry called Unfolding Word. They are in the, the space that they call church. That's a, they don't use word niche anymore. They use a space. See, I told you the world is changing. They use the phrase church-centric Bible translation. So Unfolding Word is a leader in church-centric Bible translation. And David had asked me to travel with him in the fall of 2018, prior to my time meeting Gerald in Arizona, to India to collect stories from the people who were involved in this massive new translation project where they were translating 12 totally un, uh, never before translated Bibles into 12 uh, never translated languages. And so he asked me to go with him, and I went. But global travel is not for sissies, especially not this sissy. Foreign cultures and food can be hard to digest. And riding in a cab in Delhi is like a bad acid trip. And I know something about that, okay? Um, and I wondered if my writing ministry should really be going in another direction. I felt drawn to other topics. And on top of that, I was experiencing a pretty serious spiritual dry spell. And to just sort of give you some definition for that, I didn't have much spiritual and emotional capacity to love difficult people at that point. I was pretty low. And so I was asking God, it's like, Lord, if, if you want me to keep helping Unfolding Word, then I really need to know. I just, I can't tell. I'm drawn to these other things, and I just need you to show me, because I really don't know. So I'm listening. And that's when I met Gerald, and I told him about being from the Briar Patch. And so his eyes narrowed, and he leaned in. And this is what he said. The Spirit says, You are going to minister to very many people of many language groups. The Lord will expand the capacity of your heart to love. It will take great courage. He will speak through you and give you the ability to put words together that penetrate the heart, even if they don't speak your language. They won't look like you or sound like you or smell like you. But he will give you the love to absorb it. And then his eyes kind of opened up a bit and he relaxed and he said, does that sound right? And I said, I was choking up then like I am now. I said, you have no idea. It was like a guy to put a hot poker through my heart. Now, I've had people prophesy over me before in the past. And frankly, it always felt false. And like they were trying to manipulate me somehow or get me to support whatever they were involved in. This wasn't like that. Gerald had no agenda whatsoever. And so, since that time in 2019, I have been writing a, the monthly... They call it a thank you receipt letter for donors to Unfolding Word. And um, FCC's board agreed to allow me to travel with Unfolding Word for two or three weeks out of the year, and we would just call it sabbatical time instead of vacation time. And I thought that was that. 
And so that brings us to the third element of calling, and we'll do this one kind of quickly because I've been talking too long. God's call is a work assignment based on gifting. God's call is a work assignment based on gifting. We read that passage in Acts chapter 1, uh, chapter 13, rather, verses 1 through 3, where God tells the church there, he says, Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, Luke repeatedly uses the word work to describe his ministry in, the ministry in Acts. In 13, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas were set aside from Antioch for the work to which God had called them. In Acts 14, 26, they returned to Antioch having fulfilled the work to which they were called. Acts 15, 38, Paul refused to take Mark with them on their second journey because he had not gone with them to the work in Pamphylia. He had wimped out on them and went back home to Mama. That's what it was. In Romans 14, 20, Paul refers to the church as the work of God. Romans 15, 17, Paul says he's proud of his work among the Gentiles for God. Why am I belaboring this? Well, it's just this. Ministry is work. And most of you in here know that because most of you are deeply involved in it. It's not just the pastor's work. It's not just the elder's work. It's the church's work to do. God calls all of us to the work. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And he gave, chapter 4, verse 11... And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints, that's the church, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's the work of the church to bring itself to full maturity. So ministry is work. God calls all of us to it, and God assigns our work according to our gifts. Romans chapter 12, verse 6 through 8. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If, it's, if it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If, it's, if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And there are other lists, as you probably are aware, in Corinthians of various types of giftings, but all given to the church, distributed by the Holy Spirit, under the authority of Christ, so that the church would do the work to build itself up and to reach the world. And so the thing is, it can take us a while to discover those gifts. When I was in high school, I had a great teacher in 11th and 12th grade who taught us writing. And I did my first writing projects for him. And he said, you know what, Skelton, you've got a facility for this. I didn't even know what facility meant. You know, he, he said, you're okay at this. But he was the only person who had ever seen that. That's the first time I'd ever tried it. And then I didn't get any reinforcement like that for the next several years. And so I didn't really pursue the development of that gift until that situation I told you about earlier when I gave up on the THD. 
So the point here is, is God will, once you say yes, God will begin developing that capacity that he wired into your DNA over time. But you have to say yes when you hear his call. So are you hearing his call? You may be like Abraham. God is calling you to step out into the unknown and he's challenging you to trust him. Or you may be like Moses. God is calling you to do something hard and you feel inadequate. You need to believe him and take the first steps. Or you may be like Saul in Antioch. You know, Saul and Barnabas were in Antioch. We're not real sure how long they were there. Probably a year or so. But Saul and Barnabas were two very effective teachers and leaders of a congregation. And God says, okay, I want, I want your two A guys. I want your two first string guys. I'm plucking them out and I'm sending them out. I'm sending them off. So he plucks them right out of a, what we would call successful ministry and sends them out on the road. So you may be in one of those situations and God is going to direct you, redirect you into another kind of work. It's his call. We are his servants. And it is our job to say yes. So I just want to pause and give all of us here and anybody who may be listening outside or on a podcast time with God. And we need to be asking God two things. Number one, the first call is obviously to repentance and faith in Christ. I'm convinced that God has been calling some people who are regular attenders at this church to respond to that call. And you'll never know what God can do in your life until you respond to that call first. It's like, Lord, yes, I am a sinner. I recognize Christ died for my sins. Please forgive me. Please come into my life and be my Lord and leader. That's the first step. And then the second one that we need to be dealing with is for the rest of us. We need to be asking, what is my call in the kingdom of God? God, will you please show me? And if you show me, I will say yes. So let's pray together. Take this time and ask him, Lord, what are you calling me to do? Show me my gifts. Show me my calling.
Father, you have obviously had your hand on this church from its very beginning. And you've had your hand on these people. And I think about some of these young fellows and young women, young ladies here, and the, the life that you have for them. And Father, I pray that in a powerful way, you would help them to know without doubt your calling in their lives and how to pursue it in whatever way, shape, or form it may take. And Father, I pray for us as a church, you would help us hear our larger calling, not just to ourselves, but to the world. Begin in Jerusalem, you said, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Take my word to them and teach them and make disciples and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. God, help us hear your call to that once again as a church. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.